Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors and contributors of Strategy Watch discuss current events and other military-related topics with a splash of history. I'm your host, Dan Masterson. Joining us today is Jim Dunnigan, editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author, and acknowledged pioneer and innovator in board war games. Also joining us today is Austin Bay, associate editor of Strategy Page, military author, columnist, and retired Colonel U.S. Army Reserves. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Both the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, claim to be preparing for offensives this spring. My big question, Jim, is how is either of them going to have the supplies and the logistics that they need to, uh, since they both seem to have worn out uh, a lot of their stuff? So what's going on right now with uh, resupply and, and getting ready for these offensives? Well, the Ukrainians have all that support from the West, and the Russians don't. In fact, Russians have sanctions, which limit their ability to generate uh, new capabilities. Um, the Ukrainians always had a supply advantage because they were working on, as the saying goes, interior lines. They had the railroads working. The Russians weren't able to knock the railroads out. The railroad system in Ukraine is, uh, I think it's got 400 and some odd stations. It's very, it was very well organized. It took some damage early in the war, but they quickly repaired it. So the Russians gave up on that. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, <laughs> are short on, in terms of uh, supply because, as has been reported frequently, the Ukrainians use their uh, the HIMARS missiles to uh, uh, you know, uh, regularly uh, blow up <laughs> Russian supplies. That includes not only a lot of their trucks, they're short on trucks now too, but also whenever the uh, Russian stockpile supplies, uh, Ukrainians, uh, you know, they used to be able, I, they might still be able to use their cell phones. They just, you know, uh, uh, click a picture of the uh, supply dump and uh, the uh, it goes back to the Ukrainian headquarters, which geolocates where the uh, picture taker was and, and what he was observing. And bingo, they've got another target. So the Russians are seriously deprived of supplies. They still are, even though they've been dealing with this problem for over a year. Uh, the Ukrainians, like I said, they have the interior lines. They have the railroads working. Uh, they get a constant flow of new uh, logistical support. Uh, from the uh, NATO countries. In fact, one thing they've gotten, which is going to be a big help, is they've gotten a lot of mine clearing equipment. I mean, their troops go in there and some minefields they clear manually, <laughs> which I remember, you know, learning down in, uh, in northern Alabama, Huntsville, uh, you know, Arsenal, where we trained my, my technical detachment. And man, that is a tedious process. And you got to be careful, otherwise you go boom. Um, the uh, The Russians... Uh, are are chronically short of supply, and the Ukrainians are. And that's going to make a difference. Uh, we've said we've already sent them a lot of armored personnel carriers, including Bradleys, and these are being used uh, along uh, how should I put it, cleared routes uh, to advance. So the, the Russians, no matter what they say about a, uh, a a offensive, they're playing defense. And we saw that recently in uh, in Donetsk, where they were trying to uh, take that city, you know, take really in effect by cutting that off that city, uh, Volkomar, I believe it was, 
they would cut a key road route and they would basically uh, take control of another chunk of Donetsk, which they never they never took the two provinces that they originally invaded in, in 2014. And uh, now they're making even less progress. Uh, so the Ukrainians are, are fairly well prepared for the, their offensive. The Russian offensive is all smoke and mirrors. I mean, the Russians really have no offensive left in them. They're, they're, they are basically uh, going over on the defensive. I mean, actively. Uh, they've been deploying, they've been redeploying a lot of their forces uh, to dig, uh, you know, anti-tank obstacles, uh, trenches, uh, fortifications and what have you. Uh, because obviously they're not too optimistic about making any progress. Like I say, they've knocked their brains out, lost thousands of troops, you know, trying to take a few uh, small towns uh, in, in Donetsk and Luhansk, and uh, they've made no progress. Uh, so they're in bad shape. Austin, how do you see it? Well, almost 98% the way Jim does, I would point this out, that uh, uh, Russia still has nuclear weapons. They've got uh, tactical and and, uh, and strategic nukes. Uh, Whether or not, even if only 50% of them work, that's still uh, several thousand uh, tactical warheads. I throw that in because there's always been some doubt about the reliability of uh, Russian nuclear triggers, uh, which is good in the big story, but all it takes is one nuke to uh, (coughs) totally uh, uh, rearrange at least uh, uh, politically the, uh, well, not totally rearrange, uh, Russia already faces uh, tons of opposition from Europe, but uh, Europe would go bonkers if, uh, uh, if Russia pulled off a a nuke, but they do have that, and that is an offensive weapon. And I'm just uh, bringing that up to <clears throat> that, that one that uh, Ukraine uh, can't uh, militarily counter. Uh, Russia still has, and I know I read uh, some things Jim's written. I read uh, in the defense uh, uh, defense publication so that there's a lot of uh, evidence that Russia is running out of its uh, missile stocks. And I'm talking about short range, medium range uh, uh, missiles and aircraft delivered uh, missiles, which uh, doesn't surprise me given the attempted uh, <coughs> destruction of Ukrainian cities and Ukrainian uh, infra- infrastructure. And of course they've done some substitution with Iranian so-called kamikaze drones. Uh, that, that's, uh, but they still haven't broken Ukraine's will. We can mark that up as another example of failure of a, of a strategic uh, air war uh, to uh, break the will of a uh, break national resistance. Uh, the only possible, really, example of that happening is the U.S. dropping two atomic weapons on uh, on Japan. But uh, well, Douay's idea that you're going to bomb every uh, your enemies into, into uh, submission with strategic bombing just hasn't uh, panned out, and Russia's tried to do it somewhat in miniature using missiles because uh, they found out that they couldn't gain uh, 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 air superiority. Uh, but it's about air parity is what it uh, amounts to in a very interesting situation. But that leads to what the the bigger points that Jim made, which is, is that Russia really does look like it's on the defensive. I think the name of that little town, I mean, it, it is nowhere, Dan, Bakhmut is the way I've heard. Uh, 
pronounce it. Uh, it, it if I say this, I'm, I'm not a Ukrainian officer. I wouldn't have bothered defending it. <laughs> I would have pulled back, got two or three, four clicks, and if the Russians just have to get in there and then just smash them with uh, artillery fire, high, high Mars, and whatever. But uh, they decided that since Russia had made a big deal out of it, I say they, the Ukrainian high command said, we'll make a big deal out of it. And what they did was turn it into a meat grinder for Russians. Now, they've lost uh, a, a substantial number of soldiers there, but uh, the, the the kill rate, I don't know what it is precisely. I think the Ukrainians have a pretty good uh, feel for it. You can't believe anything the Russians say, but it's at least two to one, if not three to one. In other words, the Russians, whatever they were going to do with a, 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 a an offensive, they've uh, wrecked their infantry trying to take a, a place that really doesn't have any uh, any operational uh, significance. Might have some immediate tactical if you're looking at supplying areas within five, six kilometers from there. I, I saw an analysis that suggested, well, that Bakhmut has roads. Well, it doesn't have those roads anymore because it looks like <clears throat> a World War I wasteland and, uh, uh, and is. So what, what the Russians did was shoot themselves by trying to take this, uh, take this town and the Ukrainians accommodated them. And there goes their offensive. The other thing is, is that they brought in and they, they made a big deal out of this, Dan, I want to say in December, either November or December, of bringing in a bunch of old T-62s that were going to be refurbished. And it, you had various numbers showing up, anywhere from 600 to 1,000 T-62s. They were going to bring in T-62s, from <clears throat> which was the Russian... Uh, main battle tank of 1975 when I was in an M60A1. Uh, <clears throat> that's, it shows you the era there. And uh, ERA, but uh, that's uh, the era of the T-62 and refurbished them. I'm not sure that that is, uh, uh, even if they do that, if that is something that gives them uh, an offensive edge, might be very useful in a defense, which gets back to what Jim said about evidence that the Russians are preparing for uh, a defensive battle, certainly in the Ukraine, I mean, uh, Crimea, there have been several articles out about Russian trench digging systems, and the, I've even seen some satellite photos of Russian uh, trenches <clears throat> uh, south of Kyrgyzstan and rolling across to, uh, to the east to, uh, designed to defend the Crimean Peninsula and also part of the area uh, southeast of uh, Kherson that uh, they've seized. So they anticipate the, uh, the, the Russians, at least on the ground, are signaling they anticipate uh, a, a Ukrainian, uh, significant Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, <clears throat> Ukraine. Ukraine has made the artillery munitions and include HIMARS uh, rockets, rockets in that. Uh, the, they were counteroffensives. They were, might be best to we'll call them tactical counteroffensives. There's a little 
uh, uh, strikes they made beginning last summer and, and through the fall, which pushed the Russians back to the uh, really to the way the lines lines are there. They showed that they could fight a combined arms battle. And I wrote a piece about this. Uh, we had a strategy talk where both Jim and I got into uh, uh, the uh, how the Ukrainians had demonstrated in battle that they can handle combined arms, where you get a synergistic effect of infantry, armored infantry, uh, tanks, artillery, uh, air, drones, not so much to close air support in the classic sense from a manned aircraft, but uh, their ability to employ drones uh, to provide provide air support, which I think is going to be interesting to see what they do if they really launch a major operational counteroffensive. <clears throat> I'm not sure what the situation is right now with their new Western Maine battle tanks. I, I would be surprised if we saw more than uh, uh, two dozen on the battlefield. I think the Ukrainians would use them as a, a media oper, uh, opportunity. But uh, it's, uh, it takes a while to learn how to fight a leopard Two A seven basically is what uh, the, the Germans uh, have uh, have sent them, or a Leopard two A five. It takes a long time to learn how to fight an M one A two. I mean, I'm talking about the the crew learning how to uh, uh, how to use it. Uh, Western and uh, the British sent them, I think, fourteen Challengers. Uh, they're superior tanks. Uh, yet they don't tanks don't fight individually. I've said that. Before you've got to have them covered by uh, armored infantry, and uh, also you give them air cover, so they're not uh, being hit by enemy air uh, uh, airstrike. So I'm not looking. I'm not. I don't see within the next five to six months a huge push from modern Western tanks. May see action from the <coughs> modernized. Uh, T-72s and the uh, other uh, Soviet, ex-Soviet uh, tanks that uh, the Ukrainians have been refurbishing or they've been uh, cascaded from uh, NATO countries, uh, Czechs, Slovaks, Poles, uh, you know, they're not the only ones that, but, uh, that have uh, passed them to them and the Ukrainians know how to use them. Uh, where do I think they'll strike? I know you didn't ask me that, <laughs> that, that, Dan. Uh, seeing that the Russians have set up uh, Crimea to look like something like what they were doing when they were building their uh, uh, anti-tank uh, defenses in preparation of Kursk, I don't think they're going to go at, at, at Crimea. But I think they're going to try to do something <clears throat> that really punctures the uh, the Ru Russian lines maybe penetrates right to the Russian border and separates Donetsk and uh, and Luhansk. That would have a, a political uh, send a political message. It show up on on television screens, media screens all over all over the world, and then show that they punched a hole in uh, in the Russian occupied territory. Uh, can they do it? That remains to be to be seen. But if they if they are fully supplied, particularly with uh, artillery munitions, have sufficient air cover, and uh, demonstrate the, the the 
tactical agility that they ha already have in those counter offenses. I, I think that's what we'd see. Jim, how is Russia going to continue to respond to this? Because they they don't really have the munitions anymore to give their troops to to even keep fighting, right? Well, they don't have the they don't have the troops either. Uh, they're basically their forces in Ukraine are comprised primarily of conscripts. Uh, people do not want to be there. Whereas the Ukrainians are fighting for their homeland. So there's a huge difference in the quality of the forces opposing each other. The other problem is that if the if and when the Ukrainians do get their um, uh, their Leopards and their M1s into action, and, and they are, and the challengers, they, they do train pretty quickly. I saw some uh, reports and a video of the Ukrainians, you know, training on the challenger. They sent them to England to do this. And they apparently adapted pretty quickly. I mean, basically, they're taking Ukrainian tank crews uh, who were previously using you know, the Russian tanks and sending them in to train on the Western tanks. Now, the Ukrainians quickly found out that these Western tanks are much more capable. Uh, and this has been demonstrated in many other wars where uh, Western tanks faced, you know, uh, Russian-made tanks. Uh, the Russian tanks don't have the firepower. They don't have the protection. Um, they have mobility, but that doesn't do you much good because the uh, the Western tanks have better fire control and they can hit moving targets on the on the move while they're moving uh, with great accuracy. And and the Ukrainians were impressed by that. Uh, so like I say, they they picked up on the Challenger. In fact, what they needed more than anything else was time in the tank. You know, just learning exactly what it could do. Learning how to operate the tank was not that difficult. The uh, the M1s and the Leopards, as far as maintenance goes, uh, they have plenty of maintenance personnel. And like I say, the Ukrainians have every incentive to do it fast and do it right. Uh, and they're well aware of this. The Russians, on the other hand, the people they have in Ukraine don't want to be there. Uh, and the Russians are having a more and more difficult time, you know, uh, rounding up people to send down there. And the ones that do go down there have poor training, poor leadership. Poor supplies, like I say, the Ukrainians cons consistently hammer at Russian supplies because they have the uh, they have a, a UAV, a drone system uh, that does the artillery spotting or you know target spotting, and then they can send in high Mars or artillery. Uh, there's not much manned aircraft. Or, that's that. This is something you know, you know you gotta uh, take careful note of. Manned aircraft haven't been used too much. They're too vulnerable. In other words, the uh, and and the Ukrainians are getting Patriot missiles now, too. But even with the ones they've got, it's a very lethal playground for Russian manned aircraft. In fact, what they tend to do is they fire weapons from inside Russia, which uh, affords them some protection. But recently, I think just the other day, uh, one of these Russian aircraft, you know, making a bombing run, as it were, uh, had an uh, accident and it released the bomb over a uh, Russian city. And kill several people, and, and, and you know, uh, dem uh, destroy a lot of property. So you know, the Russians haven't really got the uh, their heart in it, as it were, uh, whereas the Ukrainians do. And don't underestimate that. Uh, the Ukrainians basically uh, make the most of any new weapons they get. Uh, the Russians don't have anything to match it. For example, the Russians ran through those T-62s very quickly. They were too successful. 
and now they've been sending in C-55s. Now, they, they still have some of those, a couple of thousand. They use them for training. So they have some you know, runners, as they say. Uh, but these turkeys didn't have much ammunition. They just used them to train crews uh, before they switched over to a, uh, you know, a, a modern tank like the T-90 or the T-72. But these tanks are nothing to write home about. So the Russians are at a huge disadvantage, and they know it. They're basically playing defense. As Austin pointed out, they've been digging trenches, uh, you know, and digging in wherever they can. Uh, because what they what they are afraid the Ukrainians are going to do initially is not, as Austin points out, go for Ukraine, which is a peninsula. It's you know there's a narrow isthmus and what have you, surrounded by these these swamps, as it were, of uh, you know very impassable you know terrain, um, which makes it difficult to get in there. But what the Ukrainians are going to do is basically uh, chase them out of the uh, the other territory the Russians occupy. Uh, and in doing this, they cut off supplies uh, to Crimea. Crimea, you know, they, they, it's dangerous for, you know, Russian ships to operate. Well, they can't send in enough ships to supply Crimea. Uh, they, and the only access route they have is uh, via a, a, a Maripol, a town, a city that the Russians have and have a rail line going and uh, getting into, uh, into uh, uh, Crimea. Now, if the Ukrainians knock that out, and that is well within their capabilities of taking that, bingo, Crimea is, you know, no food, no hung, no, uh, no ammunition, uh, no nothing. Uh, and that's what the Russians fear the most, because they, as far as they're concerned, the Ukrainians could easily do that. And uh, so we'll see. You know, I think the Ukrainians will, will take the prudent approach. They'll knock out the, uh, the supply route uh, to uh, Crimea. And then they'll wait a bit and go in there and face a demoralized, you know, garrison and population. Uh, civilians have been uh, leaving uh, Crimea. Now, the Russians have made that uh, illegal recently because so many of the civilians were getting out. You know, they knew what was coming. Um, uh, but the Russians uh, haven't had too much success in getting people to stay. Uh, like I say, the Russians have their corruption, which has always been the bane of their military operations, and a, a lack of morale. Uh, you know, I mean, again, they they can't get troops to willing to fight. There are very few regulars left. That battle we talked about, Alkmut, uh, that basically wiped out the last of the regulars. They had some airborne divisions down there. In fact, they put an airborne an airborne commander general in charge of all the uh, uh, forces in Ukraine now because his guys were the only ones who uh, had any, uh, how should I put it, uh, effectiveness. But most of them died. Um, and uh, in fact, some of the uh, airborne uh, you know, uh, brigades that they talk about are basically, uh, ha don't have regulars anymore. I mean, they basically ran through all their original complement and they're just filled with uh, untrained, unqualified conscripts uh, who are basically more of a liability than an asset uh, when the uh, Ukrainians come storming in. So, you know, supply-wise, the Russians are in trouble. Troop-wise, the Russians are in trouble. And equipment-wise, the Russians are in trouble. I mean, my God, they're bringing in T-55s, and they don't even have ammunition. Well, much ammunition for these things. They use a 100-millimeter gun, and they never use them for gunnery practice. 
And so they have elderly stocks of, uh, you know, anti tank, 100 millimeter shells for the tanks. So they're basically got unarmed tanks, which they can send in there to, you know, provide target practice for the Ukrainians. Austin, yeah, let, let me add something while I was talking. Okay. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, uh, when I was mentioning the T-62s, one of the, uh, uh, the concerns about it, at least, you know, the, the, the analysis of the Russians using them is the 115 millimeter guns on the T-62s have the same ammunition problem that Jim says about the 100 millimeters on the T-55s. The ammo was old, and uh, the, the main... The T-62s that they were bringing in were having to be almost entirely refit because they'd been rotting and rusting in uh, tank yards uh, back in, uh, in in central Russia. So that that's when I brought that up, even though it was now four, five, six months ago they were bringing them. It's They've got a lot of refurbishment on, on those uh, older tanks. Let me point out something, though, about the uh, modern Western main battle tanks. There aren't that many of them. The Brits gave them 14 Challengers. Challengers a very superior tank. It may be the best uh, armored uh, of the uh, of the of the Leopard, uh, Abrams, and uh, and Challenger. Uh, uh, the, the Leopard is the one. That, the Leopard Two is the one I think the Ukrainians should have gotten because it has diesel engines. Uh, the uh, M1 has a has a turbine. Now it's it's like a a Corvette that, that weighs somewhere between 65 and 70 tons, depending on how you uh, uh, fit it out, because uh, it, uh, it's, it can really go fast, easily, easily break 40 miles an hour if you take the governor off of it. I've had, uh, you know, stories by uh, uh, M1, it was M1A1 tank. Uh, tank crew saying, uh, sir, you don't know how fast we can get, get going. They wink and say they break 50 miles an hour. Well, I don't know what they were doing. They're probably in the desert. <clears throat> My harder to do the, in, in Ukraine, but they're they're very, very fast. Of course, they're burning fuel uh, quickly when they're going that fast, and they, they're only doing that showing off. But uh, you don't have that many. I think the total numbers, may be, once it deploys, about 80. So the Ukrainians... Uh, their tank force is still going to be relying on T-72, modernized T-72s is what I've guessed, unless Jim knows something on that uh, 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 that I don't. But the, the thing that's for them is the, our, the attrition of Russian logistics, the Russian, Russian supply, and then the effect that they can they know how to tactically fight a combined arms uh, 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 offensive, and that, that gives them an edge. One other th- a huge edge. The other thing about Bakhmut, I remember looking at a at a force laydown in a British newspaper. I want to say, let's see, it's April now. This has been January when Russia was saying that they were going to take Bakhmut, and on the Ukrainians' left flank, if I re- Call correctly. So the Naval Infantry Brigade and this air assault unit. And there was Wagner, and over on the right was some sort of motorized infantry unit. And the article that was with it was, uh, and Jim, you may remember uh, the uh, this. I think we discussed it briefly. 
that this elite, regarded as elite naval infantry unit from actually the uh, uh, Siberia, had suffered over 50% dead, uh, whatever the entire casualty rate, uh, is, and, including losing 300 men and, and one high mark strike. And that, that's those, if even if these are not, uh, even if they're just good estimates, that shows you the, the, the level of casualties. The Russians were taking, not taking, just to try to, to knock the Ukrainians out of a really relatively useless, uh, now pockmarked, cratered uh, small town in, in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, it's, uh, I, I can't, can you call it a Ukrainian victory? Probably because of what it, the, the Russians let, uh, decided to go ahead and, and do, to try to achieve, as far as they were after a propaganda victory. So that's, uh, that falls on, actually not on the, on the military command, but on the, on the Kremlin. The Kremlin was one of pushing it. We've got to have some sort of media victory. And they didn't do it. It was, a, it was a propaganda victory for the Ukrainians. Yeah, and ultimately it is. Uh, and once we get, you know, Western tanks, versus Russian tanks, you'll see another, you know, a replay of, you know, battles in the Middle East where you had Western tanks versus, uh, uh, you know, Russian tanks. And even, you know, in, in the Middle East, often you had, uh, you know, uh, you know, Iraqi crews in the M1s. We gave them a bunch of M1s. And even then they were superior. The only thing you had to worry about was morale. You know, the minute the, uh, the Iraqi crews sensed, you know, that they might be in a little danger, they'd bail out. And I think that was with the, uh, with ISIL. And terrorists captured several of these things intact. Now, they couldn't do much. They ran up for a bit, and then they ran out of, you know, they, they, they couldn't maintain them and what have you. So that was that was a propaganda victory for them. But, you know, the Ukrainians are, are a lot, you know, more together, as it were, in terms of maintenance, in terms of operating these tanks. And uh, if you get a battle with eh, maybe only a couple of dozen or 30 or 40, you know, Western tanks, you know, against the Russians, uh, it's going to be embarrassing for the Russians because they really have no you may, no real defense. You, uh, you may be you you, you may, but in my my assessment of how I would use that limited number of tanks on your fleet in a situation where it would be decisive, and that's probably what the Ukrainians will do. That's probably what I you know have them have them in a. And was supported by the, their best mechanized infantry and in a spot where they want to break through. And as you know, when it first started, I said, I could see this on the map. They go and through and someplace where they fight the Russian occupied territory. Ideally, Maripol would be, uh, would be a target, but I think that's tougher to get to than somebody. And what you, what you want to do is find a, a soft spot have a breakthrough and then let your mobile troops run wild in the enemy's, in, in the enemy's rear. So possibly. Well, that's what they do after going after Maripol. That is a vital well, uh, logistics target, you know, for the Russians. And it's very vulnerable. Uh, like I said, Crimea getting into the Crimea, well, like, look, of course, that small isthmus is, uh, is doable, but it's difficult. Maripol well, Maripol, though, you know, it's on the sea of, sea of Azov, and it's also if you if you look at if if you look at how long it took the Russians to reduce 
Marple because of the, of the the area is pretty, uh, it's a strong defensive position. If you've got troops who are willing to fight, I'll, I'll specify that. It's a, it can be a strong defensive position, but going for Marple would be a good target. Indeed, and the, and the Ukrainians don't have to take it. Uh, all they have to do is neutralize it as a supply line. And that is far more achievable, and that's what the Ukrainians would probably want to do. They play a smarter game, so to speak, uh, than the Russians do, and that's been their advantage all along. Well, we'll continue to watch all of this and uh, uh, report on what we see and interpret it and let people um, know what we're thinking. So uh, we'll talk to you next time. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye, guys.